Good morning, three minutes after 8 o'clock. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, markets open trading on unsteady ground this morning. HSBC gets set to announce second quarter earnings. And the financial secretary defends a cut in the pace of government spending. However, lawmakers are angry. I think it is uh, quite unfortunate. And uh, without hearing from us, which I, I think is really quite unwise for them to do it in such a way, uh, leaving all of us out in the cold. More from legislator Emily Lau a bit later in the program. On the news side, the earthquake in China kills more than 360, and Israel begins to pull back in Gaza. In markets, does the torrid selling at the end of last week continue? We'll take a look. Investors are nervous about when the Federal Reserve is going to begin raising interest rates. And given the data that we got yesterday and the day before, investors have begun to start thinking that the Fed's going to raise rates sooner than they had previously told us. I don't think that's the case, but that's the concern and thus the correction in the the stock market over the past couple, three days. That's Mark Zandi at Moody's Analytics. Why doesn't he think that's the case? There's still a lot of slack in the labor markets, and that keeps wage growth contained. He thinks a tight labor market is at least one year out. By this time next year, I think the labor market will be tight enough that we'll start to see some substantive wage growth. And if we continue on another year, so as we move into 2016, we'll approach full employment. And at that point, I think wage growth will be quite strong. So, again, a lot of torrid selling at the end of last week. Some people thought it was because of a rate sphere, others because of geopolitical tensions, uh, and others for other reasons. Uh, we'll get to that with our international economics correspondent in a moment. Also this morning, the WH Group, the largest pork supplier in the world, raises $15.3 billion Hong Kong dollars in its IPO. Our guests this morning include Doros Kiriakoulis, an entrepreneur with a compelling new startup story. He managed to convince more than 11,000 people in a crowdfunding effort to fund his idea. It's a key that will, in effect, fund your phone when it runs out of batteries. So fund it with a little juice. And so we'll be talking uh, with him in a few minutes. Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, will be along as well to look at the recent torrid selling in markets, to look at jobs, wages, and geopolitics. And we also have Alex Wong from Ample Capital to help us look at China and Hong Kong. Well, as you heard there in that open, Financial Secretary John Jong defended a government move to cut recurrent spending here, even with a large surplus. Mr. Jong says it's necessary to prevent a structural deficit and to channel limited funds into new services. In his blog, Mr. Jong insisted that government expenditure would continue to rise, albeit at a slower rate. But departments are being asked to cut recurrent spending by 1% per year for two years starting in 2016. has upset some lawmakers. I think it is uh, quite unfortunate uh, because uh, very soon the administration is going to consult legislative councillors on what we propose they do in the policy address and in the budget. And uh, without hearing from us, they already put down all these limitations, uh, which I, I think it's really quite unwise for them to do it in such a way uh, leaving all of us out in the cold. The, that's the head of the Democratic Party, Emily Lau. She said that the government would have been better off seeking their support first. I think if they really want to have good governance, uh, want to have their proposals supported in the Legislative Council, they have to treat us as partners and to consult us 
if they have difficulties, by all means, explain to us and explain to the community. Uh, but if they just go out and make some decisions and uh, to say that, oh, uh, expenditure will have to be cut across the board. So uh, I just think many legislators will react uh, very, very in a very hostile way. Ms. Lau did not say what form that hostility would take. Let's check the Asian markets now. If you expected a lot of selling this morning, you may be disappointed. It's mixed at the moment. In Seoul, the Kospi is up seven points. That's about a third of a percent gain, whereas in Australia, markets are a little bit lower. The ASX 200 down about five points at 55.42. We'll get the Japan numbers in a minute. Dollar yen, 102.55. So that is the dollar down against the yen. The euro is trading at 1.3429 US. So that is the euro gaining a little bit of ground on the dollar. Well, Europe and the United States did see some pretty aggressive selling in risky assets late last week. One of the key reasons was linked to fears of rising wages and thus a faster pace uh, in terms of the Fed moving on interest rates. Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Analytics at Moody's Analytics, says he doesn't believe that's what's happening. There's still a lot of slack in the labor market. So if you add up all the unemployed, uh, underemployed, it comes to about one, two percentage points of the labor force. So that's a lot of slack, and that keeps wage growth uh, contained. And it's not until we absorb more of that slack, uh, we'll need a lot more jobs to absorb that slack to get to the point where wage growth will start to pick up in a more consistent way. He says the United States is probably about one to two years away from strong wage growth and thus Fed concerns. I think if we continue to create jobs at the pace that we are currently since the beginning of the year, then by this time next year, I think the labor market will be tight enough that we'll start to see some substantive wage growth. And if we continue on another year, so as we move into 2016, we'll approach full employment. And at that point, I think wage growth will be quite strong uh, and we'll get some real wage gains. Wage growth that's above the rate of inflation, living standards will begin to rise. So we're a good solid year uh, two years away from uh, much stronger wage growth. So if you believe in that camp, uh, his uh, scenario, then you'll be feeling a little bit more comfortable about the possibility of a quick interest rate rise. Well, we're joined now by our first guest, Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. Barry, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Well, what do you think? I mean, the Dow down more than 300 points on Thursday, some limited but continued selling on Friday. Overall, it was a pretty tough week. Uh, is it likely to continue? Well, I don't have a crystal ball on that one, Brian. I think it's quite possible that it does. This may be the beginning of a correction, and yet we may see a bounce back. I mean, these economic figures are very good. We've got uh, employment way up. It's uh, the six-month period of, of 200,000 jobs per month. That's the best recording for jobs since 1997 in the United States. So that's very significant. And economic growth has clearly picked up. The oil price has come down a bit. The dollar is steady. So, you know, I don't see that there's a lot of economic pessimism out there. And I don't think that uh, geopolitics has had much to do with what's happening. But I'm in the camp that says uh, interest rates is the concern. Yeah. Not for 2014, but looking ahead to 2015. Yeah, same as me. When I saw that employment cost index uh, on Thursday, uh, it was up 0.7%. They were expecting 0.5%. The last, uh, the last report was 0.3%. I knew that that would cause some people to want to get out in front of this and be worried about higher interest rates. Uh, and then we did see the big, big sell-off. But then the wages were not particularly elevated in the jobs report. 
Yes, and I think this is where Mark Zandi is um, taking the safe road. When you start predicting things for two years out, you know, most people uh, aren't going to remember anything about that. And uh, we don't see any wage pressure. We don't see any wage growth. So the, the statistics on the labor force, yes, we're creating jobs, but uh, labor productivity continues to rise. We're doing more with less workers. And uh, the average hourly wage in the United States is about $24.50. That's pretty low by European standards. So, you know, I, I, I see a labor market that uh, I do agree with Mark in the, in the short term. Labor is not going to be a problem in terms of, of increased purchasing power. And yet, Brian, we saw that consumer spending was the, was the best figure that we've seen in several months. And consumer confidence was good last week. Yes, it is. Consumer confidence is up. Autos are good. Housing is the only weak sector in the economy. And, uh, and that's mixed because it's just really weak on housing starts and construction. So good news, you know, is really good news to human beings. Uh, good news apparently is bad news to some market players. Uh, but it seems the fact is that things are getting better, but very slowly. It's kind of two, <laughs> two steps forward, one step back. Boy, I'm with you on that one. It is so slow, really. You know, we're a long way from 2008. And, uh, you know, that's, that's why uh, we need a market correction, Brian, because here we are. We're almost three years without a correction in the market. But clearly, market sentiment is driven by the fact that easy money from the Fed in terms of tapering is being withdrawn. And that easy money, I saw one uh, pundit call it, we've had a taper tantrum this past week. You know, they know the drug is going to be taken away in October. And sometime in 2015, it's likely rates are going to go up. But is this the beginning of a correction? I don't know. I do notice your market is up two straight weeks. Yeah, we've had almost a 10% swing between China stocks, if you look at the uh, movement in the eight shares, versus the uh, the Dow. So the Dow is uh, down um, roughly three percentage points, I guess, from its high, and the, and the uh, China stocks are up about seven points or so. So that's a pretty amazing difference. So, of course, you know, that, that may be it, and then things may, you know, go back a different direction this week. Uh, it'll be – it's always interesting. Every week is, is interesting. Interesting. Uh, let's go back to Mark Zandi a little bit and talk less about markets and more about, you know, healing of the economy. Um, on uh, when he when he, he was asked about, um, you know, the pace and everything, he's reasonably upbeat. I think it's fair to say that we've been creating a lot of low-paying jobs and uh, increasingly some high-paying jobs. In the middle-paying jobs is where we've been lagging. Uh, there's lots of reason for that. One key reason is is just technology. You know, you can uh, low-wage, low-skilled jobs can't be uh, performed by a, a, a computer or a ro- robot. High-skilled workers, they're actually producing the things that uh, create the technology. It's the middle-tier uh, jobs that are getting in a sense, coded out by, by technology. So that's one factor. But, you know, it's also cyclical. So, you know, state and local government jobs are middle paying, and we've lost a lot of those uh, because of the housing collapse, a lot of construction until recently jobs have been lost. Those are middle paying. And manufacturing jobs until recently have been declining, and those are middle paying. So we will get a cyclical improvement in those sectors. We saw that in today's job numbers. So I do anticipate that at least for the foreseeable future, this year, next year, and the year after, yeah. we'll start to see job growth across all pay scales, low-paying, high-paying, and also middle-paying. 
So there's a guy who's not a doom and gloomer. Um, he's not saying, look, this is a big structural move. And, you know, with demographics as they are, we're, we're going to be screwed in the United States for years to come. He says that things will get better, but it's just very slow healing. I think the report was uh, very much in their script. So if you buy into my my narrative of continued growth of, of what we've been getting and we get back to a place a year from now where we start to get consistent wage growth, that's when the Federal Reserve is saying they're going to begin raising interest rates. So I think th uh, what I'm saying, what they're seeing is very, very consistent with uh, today's job numbers. Okay, so that was uh, meant to be a little bit later. That was Mr. Zandi saying that the Fed is kind of in his camp and leans toward his thinking. I've got Barry Wood with me, our international economics correspondent. I wanted to talk to you, Barry, just about that notion that, um, you know, we have some slow healing. It's, um, it's getting better. It's just going to take some time, maybe one to two years. Well, I think that's right. It's, uh, uh, you know, it, some things, Brian, that we hear from all of the talking heads, have it spot on and go back to Mohammed El Aryan. Did he have it spot on five years ago plus when he said this is the new normal? It is slow growth. It is not what we want, not what we're used to in the state. It's a political problem. But boy, was he right. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, the geopolitical concerns. Um, as you say, really. If you take a step back, they haven't had a huge impact on investor um, sentiments. Um, we've seen markets um, perform okay over the past couple of months, uh, given you know the distinct uh, problems uh, that Europe faces with Russia on its current stance and what's happening in Ukraine, and also this craziness in Gaza. Do you think that uh, geopolitics um, finally has a big impact, or will it stay on the back burner? You know, I've got a feeling that it may now be presenting itself from the Ukraine-Russia problem. Uh, we did get the stage three sanctions from the Europeans and the Americans. And if you look at the poorest performers in this down market, what, down 2.75% on the Dow this past week, the poorest performers were the oils, ExxonMobil and Chevron. Now, the American oil companies have been very involved in the Russian market. And uh, I don't think that is coincidental that uh, that factor of the Russia sanctions and the likely future Russian response to those sanctions may have been a factor in driving those stocks down. So I think it's in the market and it could become more of a problem. And certainly it's a problem in Europe. It's unusual that the price of oil has gone from $116 for a barrel of Brent down to 104.70 this morning. Well, it is. It's bizarre when you think about it. It can't all be explained by Bakken in the United States and the United States not importing as much. But look at the silence, the deafening silence from all of the Arab countries concerning the Gaza conflict. We don't hear anything from Saudi Arabia. So, you know, I mean, go back to 1973. You and I can remember that when the Arabs responded to an Israeli you know, problem with the Palestinians and, and, and military action oil embargo. Well, we don't hear anything about that now. And as you just said, the oil price continues to go down. Yeah, you remember that? We had to wait for about 30 to 40 minutes, uh, sometimes up to an hour, just to get a tank of gas. Well, I was in Connecticut at the time. I, I remember waiting a half a day. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, let's hope it doesn't get to that. Uh, Barry, we're just about out of time. So, so thanks very much for joining us. Uh, and we'll talk again next Monday morning, our time.
Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. The time is 19 minutes after 8. Closer to home, the People's Bank of China has warned that credit and money supply in China have increased rapidly, and it says it will refrain from more monetary easing to support growth. We're joined now in our studios by Alex Wong, Director of Asset Management at Ample Capital. Alex, good morning. Good morning. So we're in an hour-long format uh, now, going from 8 to 9 o'clock, as Backchat is still on its summer break, so we've got a little bit more time. Uh, Mm. What are you most focused on this morning? Uh, I think uh, today uh, probably we would stabilize and uh, try to resume uh, with some uptrend. I think the biggest fear last week uh, was the interest rate concern in the U.S. Uh, Hong Kong absorbed well and uh, Hong Kong was holding well. But uh, we saw a very significant uh, pullback in the local property sector uh, on Friday. That was triggered by the um, uh, sell-off in Hong Kong after the result announcement. But I think the rate concern also played a part in that. Um, right now, I think uh, people probably would uh, focus more on the China side because uh, local property had uh, gone down and probably people... Um, would feel a little bit comfortable about the rate uh, concern right now, but uh, they probably would not be too aggressive in buying those, those are rate sensitive for local stocks. So I think that China would be the, the key in Hong Kong market right now. If rates were to go up, would that hurt the economy here uh, significantly, do you think? Uh, or would it be, have more of an effect just on the stock market and the property market? I think I'm more on the uh, property market and the uh, uh, stock market uh, in the meantime. Uh, right now, Hong Kong probably is um, is okay uh, in the economic situation. But I think uh, the great concern probably would be reflected first in the stock market and the property market. That's why local property stocks uh, uh, were, were, were strong and then uh, come down uh, so fast uh, uh, last Friday. The, the China PMI numbers have been have been better, although the services was a little uh, weaker. Um, how do you interpret what's really happening in the Chinese economy? I think uh, China uh, had been stabilizing and people are, are more comfortable and bullish uh, right now. Uh, we are seeing a pickup. Uh, after all, we, we were lagging behind the um, uh, U.S. and the European economy for quite some time. And uh, the new um, government actually had been in place uh, for quite a long time now. And people uh, probably were expecting those um, measures, minor measures, uh, to uh, have some impact finally. So I think in the short term, people would be um, uh, a little bit positive about the prospect of the China economy. Is there a little bit of a break between the stance of the PBOC and Li Keqiang? Uh, a little bit, I think, uh, because uh, you can see um, they are not trying to push uh, a lot of uh, uh, money into the system. Um, Let me but, just explain this yeah. to people listening. The, the PBOC is saying, look, we're not going to do much more on the monetary side. We're nervous about all this credit growth. And the government, on the other hand, has ruled out sort of a mini stimulus plan, which is to keep the economy going and to make sure that they hit that 7.5% mark. So they're in slightly different camps. Yeah, right. That is uh, true. I think uh, uh, China learned the lesson in 2009 uh, because uh, at that time, China pushed a lot of money into the system. And then uh, they saw a very large uh, asset, bu- uh, asset bubble. And then also um, many industries faced with overcapacity problem. So right now, I think uh, they are okay with uh, 
minus stimulus and try to do that uh, in in a uh, controlled environment. So that's why I think they are not trying to push a lot of money into the system. You know, when you tie up a balloon and uh, when you untie it, you can just sort of let a little bit of air out kind of slowly and it's sort of cool and nothing really too um, loud happens. But uh, when it pops, you know, it's a loud noise. All right. Yeah, that's 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 what happened. So, so which of those two do we get in China? You mentioned the asset bubble that was built up as a result of the massive stimulus, 10% of GDP. Does it pop or does it just slowly let the air out? I think uh, eventually, I'm not too bullish on China, but I think in the meantime, uh, the, the stock market would be doing okay. So this time, I think uh, we probably would have a minor asset bubble. People would not... Um, uh, we pit uh, the fever we, we saw um, five years ago. But I think at this time, we would have a, a minor recovery in the stock market and the economy. But the problem in of overcapacity remains. So you even mentioned a little bit uh, ago that uh, Hong Kong was pretty resilient. Uh, why are we holding up so nicely, um, you know, given um, all these concerns? Uh, right now, I think... Uh, People are playing a catch-up game because we had been lagging behind the world uh, for many months now. So uh, this time we saw money flowing in into the system in Hong Kong, and uh, we are also um, people are also excited about the um, coming access to the Asia market uh, through Hong Kong. So that's why uh, we are seeing a lot of optimism right now uh, here, and also the minor stimulus are. Uh, uh, given by the government, new government in China, had taken a long time already. So people are expecting some uh, positive impact coming out. So um, right now, uh, people are uh, playing the catch-up game. But I think this catch-up game probably will last uh, uh, two, two, three months only. I think uh, fundamentally, um, China momentum would not be too strong. How is the stronger Hong Kong dollar um, helping us? Oh, that is uh, helping us. I think uh, at least uh, people... Um, looking at that and feel more comfortable in getting in the market un- until we saw a um, reversal in that trend. Because a lot of money has rushed in. I mean, various people have, have focused on the downside of um, all this money rushing in. The strong Hong-, Hong Kong dollar makes everything a lot uh, more expensive in a sense. I mean, it would, it, it would uh, be going up even faster if there was not the peg. So the peg has, has um, you know, caused inflation to be a little bit higher here. But do you think that right now the benefits outweigh the costs? Oh, I think uh, it would benefit for those asset holders, uh, of course, uh, the um it would hurt those uh, people without too much asset in Hong Kong. I think uh, in the longer run, uh, this phenomenon may not be uh, sustainable because uh, we had seen this uh, quite some time, um, several times already in the last few years. And that, and and and, and those experience told us that told us that, that this could be uh, only short term speculation money. Okay, let's talk about the new economy. That's one place that people are still kind mm. of excited about. We had very good earnings from Baidu. Of course, yep. if you look at the U.S. side, uh, in social media, Facebook and Twitter uh, had strong earnings. Um, what does that tell you about the possibility for Tencent? Oh, I think Tencent would remain strong. I think uh, even LinkedIn uh, reported uh, strongly last uh, Thursday. So the social yeah. media would become a very strong sector because uh, the key members in the U.S. in these sectors are all performed well. And uh, probably um, we would have a strong quarter because of the World Cup uh, for Tencent as well. So... Um, 
I think uh, for Tencent in Hong Kong, uh, the, uh, the stock enjoy an, another advantage is that uh, if people concerned about interest rate and people uh, would look for growth, uh, given the experience we seen in uh, last year uh, when uh, Bernanke um, uh, said tapering. So um, at that time, people are looking for growth. We're looking for growth, and uh, Tencent and Macau stocks are uh, come out. But um, right now, Macau stock lo- lost the momentum already. So we had. Uh, Tencent only among blue chips uh, 2% uh, uh, growth opportunities uh, for sure. So that's why I think Tencent probably would uh, would break above the, um, the, the, the all-time high uh, before the result announcement. I think it did last week. Um, it, it went up um, sharply uh, around the middle of the week, and I think it took out its, oh, yeah. its old high of 640. It had an intraday high of 646, which um, if you look at the, at the price uh, – now, after the split, it's down in the hundreds now, but it was a five-way split. Um, yep. So what about the smaller players in that space? Anything there that looks good? Uh, no, I think uh, after the uh, sell-off uh uh, in March, I think uh, the market um, polarized already. So smaller players in, in new economy stocks in Hong Kong actually um, failed to uh, regain much of the lost ground. Like games developers, uh, they've been hit pretty hard. Oh, yeah. I think uh, people uh, uh, had several months' time to revalue the business model and determine that um, they probably were overpriced uh, earlier. So after the, 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 the bubble blast, I think uh, they probably may not be easy to regain their lost ground uh, now, and uh, probably people probably would not be too bullish on them. I think the problem for Hong Kong is that uh, only Tencent remain in this area. So it would not have a very strong sentiment uh, because yeah. we only had one Of one course, stock. waiting for Alibaba, which is in that area. But oh, but Alibaba <laughs> is in the U.S. So, yeah. so Hong Kong could not have a very heated sentiment uh, triggered, triggered by new economy fever, actually. Okay. All right, let's talk for a minute about HSBC. They will report second quarter 2014 earnings uh, today. Last quarter, the bank was kind of disappointing in its earnings as they declined 18% year-on-year. That was mainly due to a decrease in revenues. However, it was partially offset by a fall in operating expenses. So they're trying to cut expenses. Are you expecting much out of HSBC? Oh, I think uh, pretty much the same story. Probably the treasury income would still remain under under pressure. And then I think the key for HSBC this time, probably people would look at the dividend. Uh, because HSBC, the uh, stock price has been supported by the dividend yield. So this time, I think uh, people uh, people are not too sure whether they would keep the dividend. So this time, I think uh, one of the key concerns would be the dividend payout. Okay. 20 seconds or so. What, what's your best investment idea at the moment? I think still 10 cents. Okay. Ah, A one-word answer. Good. All right. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much, Alex. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us here in our studios as well. Alex is always kind enough to come in, and he is a director for asset management at Ample Capital. The time is 8.30. The weather today uh, looks like this, mainly fine, very hot, some isolated showers, thunderstorms later, maximum temperature of 33. The outlook, sunny periods, just a few hours are showers going forward. News is next. Radio 3. Actually, the news is now with Ben J. A strong earthquake has struck southwestern China, killing at least 360 people in Yunnan province and injuring more than 2,000. Radio Australia's Hui Fun Tay reports. 
The U.S. Geological Survey says the earthquake in Yunnan's Lutian County measured 6.1 on the Richter scale. It's the strongest to hit the province in 14 years. Tremors were felt 500 kilometers away. Extensive damage is being reported and communication lines to this remote mountainous region have been severely affected. Photos on Chinese state media also show troops arriving at the scene and villagers using their bare hands to remove rubble. The region lies at the meeting point of the Eurasian and Indian plates and is prone to earthquakes. The United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has described a missile strike close to a UN-run school in Gaza as a moral outrage and a criminal act. The United States says it was appalled by the shelling, calling it disgraceful. Palestinians say at least 10 people died. The Israeli army said it was targeting militants in the area of the school. A senior UN official in Gaza, James Rawley, said more than 1,700 Palestinians had died in the conflict, including 330 children. He also warned of an imminent public health disaster. We have essential services, water, sanitation, and electricity that are hardly functioning at all. We have the recipe here for a health disaster, and we are beginning, the health professionals, talking about diseases that we have not seen in the Gaza Strip for decades. I'm talking about typhoid, cholera, and other waterborne diseases that could well break out given the overall uh, health uh, disastrous situation that we see now. The Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has offered Nepal 1 billion U.S. dollars in loans to help build power plants and roads during a historic visit. Mr. Modi is hoping to reach agreements on a plan to harness Nepal's significant hydroelectric potential to help meet the needs of Nepal's domestic market and India's energy-hungry economy. My intentions are to double the amount of electricity we are giving right now and to install transmission lines soon. Right now, our electricity will remove Nepal's darkness, but in a decade, electricity from Nepal will remove India's darkness. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Morning to you, 8.33. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, we'll take a look at the news in greater depth now, and then we'll return to our guest. We'll be speaking with Doros Kyriakoulis, entrepreneur and founder of GoKey. And so we're getting that in about 10 minutes or so. But we'd like to take a closer look now at the earthquake in China. At least 360 people are now known to have died in the earthquake. It happened in northeastern Yunnan province. More than 1,800 were injured in the 6.1 magnitude tremor that struck late yesterday afternoon. Our Hugh Chiverton asked China reporter reporter Mark O'Neill, if we're now getting a full picture of what happened. Well, not really. This is a very remote area. It's in northeast Yunnan. It's very mountainous. It's between 600 and 3,300 meters altitude. Um, The earthquake has blocked many of the roads and the transmission lines. So our information is not complete at the moment. But I mean, what we can say is it is an extremely severe uh, earthquake. As you mentioned, the death toll, injuries, we're about 1,400 at the moment. 12,000 houses were destroyed. 30,000 houses were damaged. Uh, And the people who are living there are describing it like a battlefield. 
So um, it's a very serious earthquake. How, did the emergency services, were they able to uh, get there pretty quickly? Yes, um, according to Xinhua, the, the police, the fire services, the army have been sent there. Uh, we're, we're up to about 2,500 troops at the moment. Um, I mean, this is an area where earthquakes are common, so they have a lot of experience in this. Um, also, um, China is very experienced at dealing with earthquakes. So, yes, I think the rescue effort is well underway. How, how common are incidents of this size there? Um, this is not unusual. They had a serious earthquake two years ago. The death toll was not quite so high. But um, I, I think the difficulty is that it's a very remote, it's a poor area. The annual income there is about 2,600 renminbi a year. So you can imagine the quality of the buildings is not good. Um, many of the buildings that have collapsed are old uh, residential buildings. Uh, so the the quality of the life, the quality of the buildings there is not really able to withstand the, the, the severe earthquake. Is it likely that the death toll could rise then? Oh, I think so, yes, because uh, the more the rescue workers and the army arrive, the more they can go through the rubble and the destroyed buildings. I'm sure they will find more bodies there. Yeah. Uh, have you travelled in that area at all? Do you know that area? Well, I've been to Kunming. Um, now, Kunming, uh, the area, the, this earthquake was so severe that even in, in Kunming they felt the, the tremors. Um, the area where this earthquake occurred is uh, an area of the minorities. Uh, Yunnan has more minorities than any other province of China. Um, and they live quite a subsistence life, uh, mainly agriculture, uh, corn, tobacco, there's very little industry. Um, a lot of the people leave the area and go to work in, in the big cities in the east. China reporter Mark O'Neill speaking early this morning on Hong Kong Today. Well, the picture of exactly what happened in Xinjiang last week is not becoming any clearer. That's despite state media giving more details about the incident, the ethnic violence in Yarkand. And the government now admits that nearly 100 people were killed, more than half by the police. The BBC's Abigail Maudsley reports. China's Xinhua News Agency said a group of what it described as terrorists from Xinjiang's Muslim Uyghur community stormed a police station and government offices in Kashgar Prefecture. The report said 37 civilians were killed, almost all of them Han Chinese, while 59 of the attackers were shot by police. The account is disputed by overseas Uyghur groups, who say police opened fire on a protest over repressive security measures against Muslims during the holy month of Ramadan. Israel has announced a seven-hour ceasefire in Gaza. It will start later today to facilitate the entry of humanitarian aid and to allow displaced Palestinians to return to their homes. However, it says the truce won't apply in areas of the southern Gaza town of Rafah. There, Israeli forces are still operating. It was in Rafah that a missile strike close to a UN school killed at least 10 civilians. The United Nations and the United States have condemned the attack. The UN Secretary General Ban Ki Moon described it as moral outrage and a criminal act. James Rowley, the United Nations Coordinator of Humanitarian Affairs in the Palestinian Territory, sums up the situation in Gaza. Well, in one word, it's terrible. We're watching a humanitarian and health disaster unfolding uh, before our eyes. 
There is no safe place in Gaza right now. I have talked to people that have moved from their houses not once and stayed with relatives. They've moved up to four times. They have no place to go. The statistics are overwhelming. We have now over 1,700 people that have been killed, well over 8,000, if not more, that have been wounded, many of them very seriously. Over 80% of those people that have been killed are civilians, perhaps as high as 84%. We have 330 children that have been killed. You know, we're killing about one child every hour right now. I mean, that's an incredible statistic. One quarter of the entire population of Gaza, one quarter of 1.8 million people, almost 500,000 people have been displaced. Of that number, we have about 275,000 in facilities run by UNRWA. And you can imagine, we are on the verge of a precipice. We are on the verge where we can no longer cope with the scope of this disaster. And I mentioned before that we're seeing a health uh, disaster unfold in front of our eyes. That's James Rowley, a U.N. spokesman. The Israeli government spokesman Mark Regev says it's the Palestinian militant group Hamas that needs to take share of the responsibility. The former head of the U.N. schools in Gaza, the head of UNRWA, John Ging, has said that uh, Hamas and the other terrorists have a repeated pattern of behavior of firing at Israel, firing their rockets and so forth from the immediate vicinity of U.N. schools and other U.N. facilities. If it's the terrorists who are turning the vicinity of U.N. schools into war zones, ultimately they are accountable for turning those areas into combat zones and they should be held responsible. That's the Israeli spokesman, Mark Regev. The time is 20 minutes now before 9 o'clock. You're listening to uh, Money for Nothing, and it's time to take a look at how markets are faring at the moment. The Nikkei is down 82 points. That's a drop of half a percent at 15,440. In Australia, the index is down 18 points, a drop of a third of a percent. And Seoul has turned negative now, too. The Kospi is down one point, and it is trading at 2,071. As I mentioned, oil prices are on the left. Light side today, 104.77. Gold is trading under $1,300 an ounce, $1,293.50. Well, back to our coverage of business and, and finance. Now, the startup GoKey has raised more than a million dollars on Indiegogo. It attracted some 11,846 backers. Indiegogo is kind of like Kickstarter. It enables you to raise funds in a funding campaign where people actually take part. This particular funding campaign was launched with a goal of raising just 40000 So you try to get 40000 you wind up with more than a million. We're joined by Doris Kyriakoulis, who is an entrepreneur and founder of these Go devices. Uh, Doros, good morning. Hey, good morning. Hey, the startup GoKey has um, you know, done something right. What did you do so right in this crowdfunding exercise? Uh, nailed the video. <laughs> you nailed the video. So it was just a compelling video that really got people excited. Well, the video is like 70, 80% of your campaign, so you got to get it right. People really liked the video and they responded well and... Okay, it so it's a great yeah. idea. Let's face it, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great idea. Uh, who knows whether there's um, barriers of entry, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But briefly, to tell people what it is, you know, lots of people have wind up in a place where the phone goes dead, and your device just fits on a key ring. You mm-hmm. plug it in, and all of a sudden, you get a couple hours in the phone. That's it's, right, it's, yeah. Probably from your standpoint, it's ingenious. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the whole idea came because the batteries that charge the, the backup batteries they're too big and bulky to carry with you and you need an extra cable in order for them to work so 
that was that was the birth of the idea of Goki. Make it small enough so it can fit in your keychain, so you have it wherever you go. And where are you now in the stage of the startup? Well, I'm here in Hong Kong, and uh, we are um, we're figuring out manufacturing uh, with uh, with some guys that are based here, and we're visiting facilities, uh, supply chain, and and who's going to do what, the enclosure, the circuits. So yeah, and we're doing the prototype in Silicon Valley right now. We have a group of engineers working there. And tell people, if you can, what else uh, GoKey does besides just charge the phone. You can use it in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting little device. So uh, the primary uh, thing that GoKey does is give you a couple of hours of uh, extra juice for your phone you know, to, to do that important call or, or get directions to where you want to go. But you can, you can use it also as a USB cable to give your phone a full charge. Uh, so when 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 you reach a USB, you can use it for you can use it to charge or or even sync your phone with with the PC. But we didn't stop there. We want to make GoKey smart, uh, so we added uh, internal memory, eight, sixteen, or thirty-two gigabytes. So it can it can also work as a flash drive. And the cool thing is that it's not only uh, like a typical flash drive, but uh, you can connect it to your phone and you can you can. You can look at your files from your phone and you can like copy paste stuff there, which is pretty convenient. One of the things that hit GoPro last week was it sank um, quite a bit in the stock market uh, uh-huh. because people are thinking that, you know, it's not something that's so unique that others can't do. Do you have those same worries? Well, at this moment, there is nothing out there, but uh, I'm sure that pretty soon there we're going to see similar devices out there. Yeah. So how do you make your device um, better than the others? Well, it's it's the original combination of features in a very sleek and sexy and small package there. That's uh, well, we like we like sleek and sexy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Look, I mean, to be honest, I'm not that interested in the product itself, but I'm quite interested in the process because mm-hmm. a lot of people listening uh, might wonder how do you actually do this with a startup? What is the process? Coming up with an idea and getting funding. Some people would try to go to let's say venture capitalists and, and look for angel investors, mm-hmm. but you did something different. You went to um, mm-hmm. you know crowdfunding. So let's talk That's a little right. bit about how you did it with indie. Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you got to get the video right, as I said, um, the graphics in the page, and uh, and get the message uh, out there. Uh, get the right marketing guy to help you. No, you need you need a critical mass of people to go there and and pre-order on day one in order to make it a successful campaign. So you got to do a little bit of homework before you start. You know, running your campaign, you got you got to get enough people, like a thousand, two thousand people interested in buy it, and those give the momentum that you need in order to reach your thirty percent of your goal. If you reach thirty percent of the goal, it's a psychological limit. Then people are starting to 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 pre-order, and you get the momentum going. Some people may not have heard of Indiegogo. Uh-huh. They may have heard of Kickstarter. Why Indiegogo instead of Kickstarter? Well, Indiegogo was just in the same block uh, as we were in San Francisco. So it's uh, it's Indiegogo is like Kickstarter, uh, West Side Kickstarter. So Kickstarter is New York, San Francisco has Indiegogo, and um, they're great guys. I met them. I met them in hardware events, and they were super helpful. 
helping with resources and helping you do it, I said, I'm going to go with those guys. Okay, I'm going to so, do it with Indiegogo. Yeah. So you go with Indiegogo, mm-hmm. and you went with the guys who made the video. Did you do more for them than buy them lunch? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I was really bootstrapped. I didn't have any money uh, to do this campaign. And uh, an interesting story is that everything was done in deferred payment. So none of these guys got any money until we made money out of the campaign. They they came in because they believed it. And they they did their best because if if this thing was successful, they were going to get paid. So <laughs> they better made a good job. So that's what right. So you you were hoping to raise forty thousand dollars, and you rose um, more, or you uh, raised more than a million. Where does that extra money go? What do you do with that? Well, the million goes fast. Uh, this extra money, well. We, we we can afford better uh, research and development. We can afford better materials. Now we can we can we can do a better job, and we can we can deliver quicker if we have all that money. So it so helps. So your San Francisco, I, mean, I guess you come from Greece originally, right? But uh, San right. Francisco was where the genesis of this happened. Correct. Uh, but you're here in Hong Kong. Do you set up office here in Hong Kong now? Will this be your base? Yes. Yes. And that is because you want to manufacture in southern China? Why southern China and maybe not a place like Vietnam or elsewhere? Shenzhen offers uh, most options for uh, tools from factories. So, yeah, it's the place to be. You're, you're either a cool dude or you're not that excited. <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell me you're, the, you're a cool dude and it's early. I'm a cool dude. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're happy, uh, even though it's this early. Uh, um, but I, I want to—I just want to get a sense of you know the excitement of this because this is really mm-hmm. quite a remarkable story. Yes, it and is. Um, yeah. you know you're you're here in Hong Kong, and we all love success. Are you going to be successful? Tell me why. Are we gonna we're gonna sell millions of these next year? <laughs> yeah, we are. Just well, cool that's dude, not just a joke. A cool there's, dude, there's, hey, there's, 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 there's a lot of interest, like like Walmart and and, and Apple Store and all, all kinds of major retailers want to carry these. They people think it's a good idea and it, it's going to help people. Okay, well, just finally then, uh, why why choose Hong Kong? Uh, you could even set up in Shenzhen. The costs are a lot lower. It's cheaper. Why Hong Kong? Uh, it's a cooler place to live, I guess. I like okay. it more. <laughs> all right. All right. I like um, the simple approach. Doros, thank you very much for coming in. Um, best of luck uh, for it. And hopefully some people will have learned something uh, and uh, perhaps they will have uh, some optimism in their own approach. Thank you. Doros Kiriakoulis, entrepreneur and founder of GoKey. And we'll probably see GoKey on the market sometime soon. <laughs> Okay, just briefly into markets again, uh, looking at gold prices, still trading under $1,300. Really not too much movement in Asia this morning. It's kind of slightly to the downside. Most of the market's in the red, but not, boy, by more than around half 
of 1%. We continue with our news coverage now. The Ukrainian defense minister says his forces have made significant gains against pro-Russian rebels. In an interview, his first with the international media, the minister said it was important for Ukraine to take control of the crash site of flight MH17. But he said that it was more important that fighting between Ukraine's army and pro-Russian rebels did not affect the work of international investigators at the crash site. The minister was speaking to the BBC's Tom Burridge in Kiev. Dressed in his Ukrainian military uniform, Ukraine's defense minister, Valery Helatei, said he had a military strategy to take control of the large area of countryside containing the wreckage of flight MH17 in eastern Ukraine. But he said for now that strategy would not be put into practice and his soldiers would not fire a single shot in that area because, he said, it was a priority that teams of international police and investigators continue to gain access to the crash site. This was the Defence Minister's first interview with an international journalist, and Mr Halatei told me his forces have recently made significant gains from pro-Russian rebel forces who he calls terrorists. To understand what is going on in our anti-terrorist operation zone, you must understand who we are fighting. The separatist territory is now two and a half times smaller than it was four weeks ago. More than 65 towns and villages have been liberated by Ukrainian forces in Donetsk and Luhansk region. Our forces are in an offensive phase. But I want the world to know that Russia is retaliating. They will stop at nothing. We are shot at up to eight times a day from inside Russian territory. Ukraine's defense minister said his army is close to winning the war against pro-Russian rebel forces. But he claimed that despite the recent losses inflicted by Ukraine's army, the rebels still have around 15,000 troops. He claimed the rebels are being reinforced by men crossing from Russia into Ukraine. Here at home, hundreds of people marched to the police headquarters in Wanchai yesterday, showing their support for frontline officers in their handling of demonstrations. The organizer of the march, called the Alliance in Support of Our Police Force, estimated as many as 4,000 people took part, but the police put the numbers at more like 2,200. RTHK's Damon Pang has details. Support the police, chanted the marchers, who mostly wore white and carried flowers to show their support for the maintenance of law and order. The alliance's convener, Letitia Lee, was particularly critical of protesters who tried to storm the Legislative Council building during a protest against Newtown development plans in June. Some of the violent people or youngsters, they would like to air the frustrations for the government, so they tried to do something quite extreme try to broke in the door of the LegCo, okay? This is um, something that we do not want to see. And for the police, they have to fulfill their duties. As a citizen, we hope that we'll encourage the police force to continue their duties. Many of those who participated in the march were retired police officers. One of them is Jimmy Chow. The police officer, they're doing very well and hardworking and keep the Hong Kong police. But some, still a lot of people they say something against the police officer. So we had to support the existing uh, officer. Another participant, entrepreneur Andy Lai, says people who are critical of the police should not just focus on what he called a minority of officers who may have abused their powers to challenge the whole force. 
Well, I think nowadays in Hong Kong it is too much noise, and the noise is not healthy noise. Most are too biased, especially for the police. It is very unfair to the police. The job of the police is just to maintain order and discipline of the society. I don't think anyone can challenge the power of the police. After their march, the demonstrators returned to Cheda Garden, where they held a rally and observed a moment of silence for police officers who lost their lives in the line of duty. Damon Peng reporting. Meantime, more than 60 people rallied at Tamar yesterday to pay tribute to House News, the local news website that abruptly closed last week. One of its founders, Tony Choi, blamed what he called white terror and concerns about his family in announcing the site's closure. And some of those who attended the rally said that they feared that fewer and fewer media organizations here would be willing in the future to speak up for Hong Kong. One of them was a blogger at House News and a spokesman for a group called Called the League in Defense of Hong Kong's Freedoms, James Hon. The fear is always there. We have seen a lot of media in Hong Kong under all kinds of political pressure. And now the sudden closure of House News probably has waken up again to this fear. Whether Hong Kong citizens are so afraid that they are going to shut their mouths or whether they are going to fight more fiercely will have to depend on Hong Kong citizens' determination and their courage to go on fighting. Another reason cited for House News closure was low advertising revenues. But Vincent Choi, who's a marketing columnist who also wrote a blog at the site, believes news websites are financially viable in Hong Kong. If you look at like Apple Daily with 400,000 unique viewers every day, that they have a lot of business. And I think House News is approaching that number. They are improving over months and they get more and more advertising over the past few months if you look at their page. So I think they are improving in terms of achieving a healthy financial model. And that's why I don't think it is the most important reason why they, they closed down. I think the major reason would be the pressure that he faced from maybe the government or maybe China. The blogger Vincent Choi. A potentially large labor force, new women migrants from the mainland, is going untapped because not enough is being done to encourage them to join the workforce. That's according to findings from the New Home Association and the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration. It says four out of five new arrivals have work experience, but only 30% of them eventually find work. Professor Joe Lung said many women drop out of the workforce because of family obligations. He told RTHK there should be more affordable and reliable child care, community support networks, and also flexible working hours to assist these women. They only can afford to work during the school hours. So uh, we have to see what kind of work that can be more family-friendly to this group of people. So uh, if these sort of affordable things are available and so on, the sort of childcare and, and the work design and so on available for them. I think this woman has strong motivation to work or to build up the work capacity. So uh, this is a potentially a very, very strong labor force that can be tapped into. So we hope that the society and the government can take more action and to provide this sort of childcare support and try to improve the labor market for this group of people. Now, is that just a problem that affects migrants, new migrant women? I think the, the, the the market situation does 
does not really discriminate new arrivals. It is to discriminate against those who have no skill, no education, uh, those who have family obligations. We can see that the labor participation rate of women in Hong Kong is only 50%, which is very low in, in the international uh, standards. So uh, that means that, that on the whole, we have to be more considerate in, in promoting the kind of uh, family-friendly employment policies to release the women I mean, into the labor market. The, the situation of the new arrival is that they, they, they're usually lowly educated and they don't know the labor market situation. They rely too much on friends, and which they, the kind of connection they, they do usually lack of to, to make referrals for, for job referrals. I mean. So they are, on the whole, I mean, more, uh, seem to be more disadvantaged than even grassroots low-income woman in Hong Kong. That's Professor Joe Lung speaking with RTHK's Richard Pine. Well, that's our program for today. We'll just leave you with some of these closing numbers here. We didn't tell you about the RMB. It's uh, trading at around 620, but at the fixing rate at 6.168 to the U.S. dollar. The pound is trading at 13 Hong Kong dollars and four cents. Looking at other currency trading, the U.S. dollar is worth 102.51 Japanese yen. And looking at the euro versus the dollar, the euro is worth a dollar 34 U.S. Equity market. Uh, the Nikkei down 61 points, uh, trading off four tenths of 1%. That's at 15,461. In Australia, the ASX 200 down 24 points. And in Seoul, the Kospi is just down about one tenth of a percent. Pretty nice day today, mainly fine. Some isolated showers expected. We're looking for sunny periods apart from a few showers over the weekend. The maximum temperature about 33 degrees. The news next, and then morning brew. 